0: Canada, our home and native land. But didn't it because like they changed like the lyrics at some point.
1: Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drook. I hope everyone had a good long weekend for July 4th. And speaking of the 4th what percentage of Americans can correctly name the national anthem? What percentage of Americans are hot dog people versus burger people? To ease ourselves out of vacation brain and back into the world of statistics, we're gonna kick things off with a little July 4th themed game of guess what Americans think. Then, on a more serious note, we're gonna catch up on the January 6th committee hearings and talk about how they might affect our politics. Are people watching and do they care? And at this point in the primary process, what percentage of Republican nominees are election deniers? Finally, we're going to save our good use or bad use of polling example till the end of the show because it's somewhat related to those hearings. At the end of June, one 2024 Republican presidential primary poll out of New Hampshire got everyone talking about Trump's vulnerabilities. But was it a good use of polling? Here with me to discuss is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hello, Nate. Uh, hey, everybody. Also here with us is politics and tech reporter Kaylee Rogers. Hey, Kaylee. Hey, guys. So uh, how was everyone's 4th of July? Nate, it looks like you're back in Las Vegas. What's uh, What's going on?
0: So I flew in in the afternoon. Um, had an invite to the club last night. Turned it down to be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed for this podcast, just to let you know. And also because I'm 44 years old and get tired <laughs> that's so considerate the, of a of a you.
1: the club as in like you were going to go to like the club to dance and like drink bottles or the club as in the poker club
0: no the club you wouldn't go call it like poker players don't have i mean we don't yeah what do you mean the club
1: oh like the club like party in the club like clubbing clubbing which i didn't do yeah which Nate, which club i'm not going to say <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's not like a to good
2: tonight?
1: <laughs> um that's awfully interesting, mate. Yeah, are you gonna go tonight? No. Tomorrow I'm
0: playing in the main event of the World Series of Poker. So today's a day of okay. um relaxation, maybe get some good food, but pretty low-key.
1: Wait, so this is the final round of the World Series of Poker?
0: It's not the final round. There are a hundred different tournaments that comprise what's called the World Series of Poker. But the most famous tournament is this week. So my first day is tomorrow.
1: How far away are you from being the World Series of Poker champion?
0: So there'll probably be about 10,000 people who enter. Okay, So just 9,999 more people have to be eliminated before I become the 2022 main event World Series (laughs) Poker champion. Just a few more people on the way.
1: Okay, so obviously becoming the champion is the goal, but like, what for you would feel like a good placement?
0: Uh, top one hundred. I don't know.
1: Top one hundred. Okay. Have you yeah. done that before?
0: I mean, I've gotten second place in a different event. I've never cashed in the main event. Never finished the top fifteen percent in the main event. But like, but you set your sights high. That's the thing about poker. It's like. Uh, Like, sports in the sense that, like, everyone who doesn't win the championship feels disappointed at the end. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think you want to go in with the mentality of, like, obviously, if you kind of, Galen offered me, I'll guarantee you, Nate, that you'll finish in 15th place and win $600,000, right? But you have no chance of getting first. Obviously, I'd very happily take that deal, but that's not the mentality that you want,
1: I think, going in. You
3: need a winner's mentality.
0: Winner's mentality. Thank you, Kaylee.
1: Nate, I want you to know that you are a winner in our eyes, no matter Uh, where you place. uh, Thank you. So go forward confident in that knowledge. Okay, Kaylee, I take it you're not in Las Vegas about to compete in the World Series of Poker. But if you are, I'm very jealous and have intense promo.
3: Uh, I am not, no. I mean, Nate, you can rest assured that you are the best poker player on this podcast today. I mean, that's that's without a doubt. Small so.
1: victories. I
3: don't know, I can know. I can see
1: Tony being pretty good. Way in, Tony, if you are also in Las Vegas. Um, Kaylee, <laughs> but what are you up to? How was your fourth?
3: My fourth was really good. I went to a minor league baseball game, which was great fun, and then they had fireworks on the baseball field after the game, so it felt very American. It was wonderful.
1: Fabulous. Well, on that note, let's dig into our Guess What Americans Think July 4th themed game. And I should mention, Kaylee, you are Canadian, as listeners may know. Nate, you're a Michigander. So the pressure is on. I mean, if you get beat by a Canadian in Guess What Americans Think about July 4th, I think you might get your citizenship taken away.
0: I mean, maybe not a big loss at, at this point. I'm just kidding. Wow, I, I'm very, that is
1: so unpatriotic. I am actually pretty that fucking is patriotic. I'm very patriotic. I'm
0: depressed about our system of government, but I love the American people, Galen.
1: Yeah, me too.
3: I will say, I recently got my green card, so I'm like, I'm one step closer. Yes, to...
1: congratulations.
3: Thank you. By the way, Michigan's like
1: almost Canada. Almost Canada. Yeah.
3: I gr- I grew up on Lake Huron, so it was like, yeah.
1: Am okay. I the only real American on this podcast? Michigan is just Ontario South. (laughs) Uh, Well, having just gotten your green card, maybe you're prepped up on facts about America. Although I don't know that this will help you in this case. Okay, so (laughs) let's actually play this game. Does everyone remember how to play Guess What Americans Think? If not, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a polling question and you will have to guess how Americans responded. Whoever gets closest to the actual percentage wins the point. We're also going to change things up a little bit In that after I read the question, I want both of you to write your answers down on a piece of paper, on your computer, on your phone, whatever. And then I'll ask you both to tell me at the same time what you wrote down so that your responses don't affect each other's. Does that sound good? Are you guys ready? Yes.
3: No cheating. Got it. All right.
1: Here we go. First question. In a 2016 survey, what percentage of Americans could correctly identify the nation's anthem? A.K.A. the Star Spangled Banner.
3: Can you clarify what you mean? Like they played them the song and asked if they could.
1: They asked Americans, <laughs> it, "What is the national anthem of the United States of America?" And people had to offer oh, the so name, name. The Star the Spangled title? Banner. Were they giving multiple okay. choice? No more questions. No more questions here. Well,
0: no, that's important context. Not how polls
1: work. Uh, we're just no. Yeah. They were not We're journalists. we want information. They were not given multiple choice. Oh. So we both blurred out at the same time. Three, two, one, go.
3: 42.
1: 63%. Wait, okay, 42 was Nate, and 63% was Kaylee. Kaylee, you got it. 61% of Americans in that Gallup yes. poll could correctly identify the national anthem. Me. way to really underestimate uh, Americans' patriotic capabilities.
0: I mean, any kind of questions to ask for, like, an open response,
1: generally just a lot of people don't know. I'm surprised.
3: I mean, it's 63. That's a modest, you know. That's a third everyone. of,
1: Ameri- more than a third of Americans can't name it. right? And it's played yeah, at every so, baseball game, every July 4, you know what I mean? Start of every school day. No, that's the Pledge of Allegiance. Right? <laughs> <You Yep. know? laughs> that would that um, would be really intense because it's like... We sang "Oh Canada at the start of every school really? day. Well, I guess you guys are more patriotic. The notes in the Star-Spangled Banner are really hot. Like, the range that you have to be able to sing to be able to sing that song. would be crazy to have, like, third graders singing the Star-Spangled Banner at the beginning of the school day.
3: It's a challenging tune.
1: The Pledge of Allegiance, you can kind of talk your way through. But, uh, okay, one point for Kaylee, the Canadian, zero points for Nate the Michigander. I can sing O oh, Canada though, which I'm not gonna do. Do you, wait, 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 There's you absolutely can. no <laughs> chance that you were going to say that on this podcast and not be made to sing O oh, Canada.
0: I'm not sure all the lyrics. Oh Canada. Our home and native land. But didn't it cause like they changed like the lyrics at some point.
3: <laughs> they made oh, them more come on, they so made close. them more PC
0: at some point, didn't they? Less gendered.
3: They changed one word. They yeah. changed one word. What did they change? From in all our sons command to in all of us command.
1: Okay. All right.
3: That's the change. Very subtle. Very easy. Didn't change the rhythm or anything.
1: Nick, that was beautiful.
3: You're also supposed to be able to sing it. Yeah, it was pretty good. You should be able to sing it in French as well.
1: Oh, yeah. So. No, no chance. <laughs> okay. Next question is... What percentage of Americans in a 1999 survey, and we tried to find something more contemporary, um, but Emily was unable to find something from this year or recently. In fact, this was the only time she could find this question asked. In this 1999 survey, what percentage of Americans could not correctly identify the country from which the United States won its independence? Could not. Could not. Could not.
3: Okay. In 99, let me cast my mind back.
0: What was big in 99? Like, Friends was big?
3: The Matrix.
1: Sucks in the City.
3: Okay, I think I'm ready.
1: All right, here we go. Three, two, one, go. 30. 38. 38 and 30. Nate, you got it. But you overshot it a little bit. Still underestimating America's (laughs) patriotic capabilities. Okay. 24% of Americans in a Gallup poll did not know that the United States gained their independence from Great Britain. Of that percentage, 2% thought America's freedom was won from France. 3% mentioned another country, including Russia, China, and Mexico, along with many other countries. And 19% were simply unsure.
0: Anyone say Canada? That's a great (laughs) question.
1: Uh, Let me, I'm going to look it up.
3: I mean, that would be almost closer to the truth since Canada was part of Great Britain. Yeah. So, so you're like kind of almost a little, maybe sort of revisionist, but you know. <laughs>
1: uh no, I do not see any data on how many Americans selected Canada. Uh okay, so it is 1 to 1. Next question. What percentage of Americans said in a 2017 poll that their family had already achieved the American dream? That's a good one, right? This
3: is a good
1: one. Okay. You thinking about it? You have a number in your head? Three, two, one, go. 58. 72. Ooh. Okay. Interesting. Kaylee said 72. Nate said 58. So, here's the result. 36% of Americans in a Pew Research Center poll said they had already achieved the American dream.
3: Oh, that's so few. <laughs>
1: significantly fewer than what you said. However, this was not just a yes or no question. Either you had or had not achieved the American dream. 46% of Americans said that they were on their way to achieving it. And 17% said that it was out of reach. So in a way, I understand why you guessed a really high number. I think probably because you're suggesting that Americans do really believe in the American dream, which I think this polling backs up. It's just that, the plurality of people feel like they're in the process of achieving it as opposed to having already achieved it
3: fascinating
0: i mean galen shouldn't you provide this context when asking us to
1: dissect folding results before (laughs) no
3: i mean nate you still won you still were much closer than i was
1: yeah do you want me to you you want to you want to do maybe give kaylee an opportunity at that
0: point i'll take the i'll take the points i'll take the points so i ever said anything
3: it's not that I thought that that many people had actually achieved the American dream. I just thought a lot of people kind of think that they have.
1: Yeah. Okay. Have either of you achieved the American? Okay. Recent green card holder. Have you achieved the American dream?
3: <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean, I'm an immigrant who, you know, was able to find opportunities that weren't available to me in my home country and have improved my life and career. So.
1: All right.
3: Is that not? Let's see. I mean, I just bought a house. Like,
1: <laughs> I mean, you're a 36 percenter. <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: Uh, so. Nate, have you achieved the American dream?
3: Yeah.
1: Okay. <laughs> two out of three on this podcast. <laughs> I'm going to put myself in the 46 percent. I'm a striver. I'm, st- I'm still trying to get there. But don't count me out yet. Okay. So Nate, two. Kaylee, One. This is a really important question. In a 2019 Food Network survey, what percentage of Americans said that on July 4th, they would choose a burger over a hot dog on their plate at their barbecue or wherever they are for July 4th? Burger over hot dog. Yes. The real showdown. Ready? Three, two, one, go. 56. 74. 56 and 74. Okay. It was fifty yeah, percent. You got it. <sighs> Only ten percent of Americans said that they would choose a hot dog instead of a burger. Forty percent of Americans simply could not have an allegiance to either a hot dog or a burger.
3: They pick both. Yeah, uh,
1: I forgot about both as an well. That yeah, that's, really that's a little specified by wasn't the... really clarified. It wasn't really a <laughs> simple question. Uh, um, can I say? Something? Are you accusing me of a bad use of polling? I feel like people should
0: be
3: getting better hot dogs. Okay. I... Wait, see, would you choose hot dog over burger, Nate? A burger just feels more substantial to me and well, feels you can more. Have two hot dogs. I don't know. I... Like a really good hot dog? You can have two hot dogs.
0: You know who makes good hot dogs, by the way? Is the Scandinavians.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the Germans, right? Don't the Germans make good hot dogs? They make good sausages. Like Ikea hot, hot dogs? Like, like
0: <laughs> go to <laughs> Stockholm or Copenhagen, they have some fancy f-ing hot dogs that are. I like mean Kroger that is whatever, truly uh, that is
1: truly anti-American behavior. We're talking about hot dogs on July 4th and you're telling <laughs> everyone to go to Stockholm or Copenhagen. Galen.
0: Uh. <laughs> so By the way, Vegas is the most American place on Earth. So maybe I'm a little mm, bit Americaned
1: out. I don't know. I think New York City is the most American place on Earth. Uh second most. It's
3: different kinds of America.
1: Um <laughs> And if anyone wants to fight me about that on Twitter, go ahead. I think the reason I prefer a burger is because maybe this is like rude to hot dogs and maybe Scandinavian hot dogs aren't like this, but it just seems further removed from actual food. When I look at a burger, I can kind of tell what happened to it or like where it came from. But with a hot dog, I look at it and I can't if you ask me without any knowledge, like where did this food originate? I don't know that I would be able to tell you.
3: Like, what animal it came from?
1: What animal? Like, is it meat? Like, if you told me this isn't meat, I would be like, okay, it's not meat. It's just something else.
3: Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I've been a vegetarian for 10 years. So. All right.
1: Well, <laughs> All right. speaking <laughs> of anti american no use here. It's not meat <laughs>
3: if it's on my
0: barbecue. <laughs> I mean, I think technically the term is encased meat scaling, of which uh, a hot dog is just one kind. No, I mean, like the Chicago-style hot dog, for example, is like one of the great foodstuffs of the world
3: i mean i will say as a vegetarian what i like about hot dogs is veggie dog can approximate a real hot dog pretty closely in the way that you can't approximate other meats
1: yeah because it's not very similar to meat (laughs) as as it
3: yeah and there's so and so much about the texture and like the seasoning more so than like the meat flavor mm -hmm. as an
0: omnivore that puts me firmly on the hamburger side now (laughs) that that's a great argument against against hot dogs (laughs)
1: we are we we have more questions about july 4th i think we should move on to the actual you know hard content of the podcast nate apparently being from the united states does earn you something you won ultimately congratulations happy july 4th
3: i mean you both forgot that it was also canada day on friday so
1: just yeah Gail, i'm happy rude. to do a, a can around at least trivia.
3: Nate sang the national anthem to me
1: <laughs> okay we're gonna come back on this podcast at some point <laughs> and do rehash this it's gonna be questions about canada and we'll see who wins probably kaylee but for now let's talk about <laughs> <Hopefully> something <not. laughs> a little less fun which is the january 6th committee hearings
2: you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements. Or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to LipsonAds.com now. That's ads. dot com.
1: On Tuesday last week, Cassidy Hutchinson, a former aide to Trump's chief of staff, was the star witness of a last-minute hearing. Hutchinson outlined the days leading up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol and how Trump and his administration were aware of the threat of violence. Before the attack on the Capitol, she said Trump told his staffers to allow his supporters to bring weapons to his rally because, quote, they're not here to hurt me. Knowing some of his supporters were armed, he then directed them to the Capitol after the rally, according to Hutchinson. Hutchinson also testified that Trump wanted to go to the Capitol himself after the rally, but that his security team wouldn't drive him there because of security concerns. Hutchinson gave a secondhand account from the deputy chief of staff, who said Trump yelled repeatedly at the Secret Service agent driving the presidential beast and then lunged at the steering wheel, then at the Secret Service agent's clavicles. As more information about the attack on the Capitol and how Trump spread 2020 election lies is covered in these hearings, How will this all affect public opinion, the 2022 midterms, and specifically candidates who support the big lie? So on Model Talk last week, Nate and I briefly discussed where January 6th sits in all of the political considerations going into the midterms. Kaylee, you have been watching all of these hearings, and unfortunately, um, you had COVID uh, when this hearing happened last week. If not, we might have had an emergency podcast in the moment. It just wasn't meant to be. But I am still curious now, a week later, what your reaction was to that hearing, having sort of watched them all and done some research into historical congressional hearings. I
3: thought the reaction to it among the media and in people on the left was interesting because there was a real kind of sense that this was explosive testimony um, from Ms. Hutchinson. And, you know, some of the more sort of scandalizing details that she revealed were like second and third hand, you know, knowledge that she, you know, heard from other people and was repeating, which to me really waters it down uh, and makes it harder to to verify, obviously. And even since then, we've had reports that, you know, the Secret Service doesn't stand by that testimony, that Bobby Engel is willing to testify under oath that, the you know, the assaults in the the presidential limousine didn't happen, so it, it was a it was a complicated uh, hearing, I would say, at the very least. And then on the right, there you know there was also kind of an explosive and quick reaction. Trump very strongly came out and denied a lot of her testimony, uh, but it clearly kind of got stuck in his craw, and he has been um, posting on his social media network through social. And putting out statements in response to the hearings, kind of all along, but this one like elicited a really strong response from him. And he was even posting, um, last night, like on July fourth, he like went on True Social to like complain some more about Cassidy Hutchinson. So this really seemed to like bother him in a way. Um, and Q even posted about it. Q's back, by the
1: way. What did Q have to say about it?
3: You know, it was very um Qy. It was like, what is a plant? Who is Cassidy Hutchinson? Think truth, question mark, you know, just whatever nonsense, uh, cryptic messages he posts. But it was it was in the, the conversation.
1: So considering all those nuances, and I as I mentioned, you've been looking back through congressional hearings in the past to see which sort of actually changed public opinion when it comes to Watergate or on Contra or things like that. Is this the type of hearing and does it have the sort of broad viewership? that would actually impact public opinion?
3: I think what's interesting, so if you look at the viewership, right-wing and Republican viewers are, are not watching it as much. Um, we can get into those numbers in a bit here. But I think what's interesting to me is I kind of expected Trump and Trump supporters to sort of brush it aside and, like, pretend it's not happening. Like Let's just ignore it because we believe it's a witch hunt and it's partisan and it's BS. But that's not been the case. They've really been engaging with it. And, you know, gateway pundits like writing like fact checks of Cassie Hutchinson's testimony and Trump's truthing about it and everybody's responding to it. And so there is a lot of conversation. And so while maybe not watching it firsthand, people are hearing about it and discussing it. And while that's, you know, with pushing back against the testimony, it's clearly eliciting a response. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that they've focused almost exclusively on testimony from individuals who are lifelong conservatives, who were in Trump's inner circle, worked for Trump, were appointed by Trump. You know, these aren't fellow Democrats or just kind of like random government bureaucrats. These are very much like Trump's people and Republicans who are coming out and detailing what happened on that day. And I think that's why it has elicited this response.
1: But you said viewership amongst Republicans, or perhaps the proxy is Fox News viewership has been down. What does that landscape look like in terms of ratings while these hearings have been happening?
3: Ratings that showed that when Fox actually airs the hearings like during the day, their viewership numbers drop below a million, so I think it's 750,000 roughly around there, compared to like 2-3 million on the other major networks, and in comparison to the kind of viewership that Fox normally enjoys on like a normal weekday afternoon, which is like one or two million, and when they would you know, finish the hearings and move on to the regular scheduled programming, those numbers would shoot right back up. And so it's clear that those viewers are, are, you know, changing the channel or turning the TV off when those hearings are actively being shown. They'd rather, I think, uh, get their information about it or view it through the lens, through the filter of... Trump or, you know, pundits or whoever it is that they trust to to hear about it kind of secondhand rather than sit and watch the whole thing. I mean, part of that, I mean, it doesn't make Trump look good to hear the facts of this case. And if you're a Trump fan, Trump supporter, you probably don't want to sit and listen to that. I think that the the committee's clearly trying to craft a narrative that breaks through, that captures everything, and that hopefully... Can stand up to some of this pushback by relying so much on conservative and Republican testimony. It does kind of harken back to, you know, I wrote that piece about historical hearings that made a mark, and and a lot of the characteristics of that are at play here. So bipartisanship, in so much as they're letting Republicans tell this story, which is, you know, what we saw in like the Watergate hearings. And having actual insiders and staffers reveal knowledge that we wouldn't otherwise have. Like, Cassie Hutchinson was never going to go to the New York Times and, like, tell her story. That was never going to happen. But she was compelled to testify in front of the committee. And so we get to hear what happened from her perspective on that day. And that's really the power of these kinds of hearings.
1: Mm-hmm. Nate, hearing that and looking at the polling landscape over the past couple weeks plus as these hearings have happened... What impact is it having on the nation's views of Trump, Republicans, the big lie, whether January 6th was a crime?
0: I don't have a good answer for you because it's kind of a tough question to to pull on in some ways. I mean, Trump's unfavorable rating is up by a point or two over the past few weeks. You can always debate whether it's a statistical quirk or reflects underlying developments in the news. You know, people are generally pretty partisan in the question, but there are some Republicans who don't believe the big lie, not many, right? And some independents who aren't interested in it. What's tricky to know is kind of how how salient people rate this as being. Like Gallup does a monthly survey of what are the most important problems um, in the country today. 40% in June said some version of the economy, often inflation, sometimes the economy in general, you know things like gun control actually rate higher than um than election <laughs> integrity or anything like that. Immigration and crime sometimes rate more highly. COVID used to, although now COVID's very far down the list for most people. You know, look, in some ways as you guys were getting at, Democrats have kind of absorbed some lessons, right? If you kind of wrote, were some communications professor who wrote pointers on how you have effective hearings, right? Have dramatic reveals have some bipartisan testimony put some of them in prime time whatever else right have a concentrated burst so they're doing kind of some of the things that seem like they're smart but the issue is that there's a lot of news so if you go to like the new york times right now it's uh noon east coast time on july 5th right the headline is about this uh shooting in illinois the next set of headlines is about uh roe v wade the next set of headlines is about the russia ukraine war and then finally get down and there's some um some reference to election fraud and how consumers are reacting to it um, which i'm sure is a good story but like but it's always like the third or fourth most important thing even from a paper with fundamentally a vantage point that is you know matches the sensibilities of liberal readers for the most part right the times might be not be talking about inflation as much as fox news would But even liberals tend to think that Roe v. Wade and gun violence are issues that are more urgent. And one can understand the political utility of that. I mean, those are both issues, abortion and guns, that unite different factions of the Democratic Party. But, you know, if there's a shift in the polling now, it's not a huge shift. It's maybe a modest shift. And the question is kind of how will this sustain itself when – this is one on a very one portion, on a very big plate of different items that both parties are talking about.
1: Kaylee, I know you've been looking into the data as well. Does that roughly match what you've been seeing?
3: There is a portion of the American population many of the polls, a slight majority who believe that based on what they've heard of the hearings and, and the reporting up until that point, that Trump should be charged uh, for his actions on and around January 6th. But that's not necessarily growing dramatically after each hearing or anything like that. So I I do think that there is some impact on the polling, but it's not, like Nate said, there's a lot of other stuff going on. And to a large degree, people have somewhat made up their minds about this. I think what's the main takeaway for me is that backlash and response from Trump, from Republicans, that shows that they're taking this serious to some degree. Like, I, I don't know that Trump would bother responding to this this much if he thought it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. This isn't going to affect me at all. So there's there's something there. Maybe I'm reading too much into those two links. But
1: no, I mean, and we can talk a little bit more about the impact on Trump specifically in a second when we get to our good use of polling or bad use of polling. But before we do that, I do want to ask, you know, we are tracking throughout the primary season the number of Republican candidates who deny the results of the 2020 election who ultimately win the Republican nomination in their race. Right now, as folks may realize, I guess as we continue our podcast coverage through the month of July, we're on a hiatus um, in the sense that there are no primaries other than Maryland scheduled during the month of July. They pick back up in August, and there'll be plenty then, and we'll get back to covering them. But sort of during this short down period, we have been able to look back at everything that's happened so far since March in the primaries and gauge, you know, how frequently big lie believers, election deniers, however you want to characterize them, are winning Republican nominations. Kaylee, what's the data say?
3: As for races that have been called through today, so Tuesday, July 5th, 49 percent of Republican nominees either question the legitimacy of the 2020 election or outright denied that it was legitimate. Uh, If we can split that up, so 35% are the group that fully denies the legitimacy of the 2020 election and 14% are people who have questioned it or, or, you know, been kind of shady about what they think happened in 2020. And I think it's important to note also the rest of those nominees aren't like coming out strongly saying like, no, 2020 was legitimate. We lost fair and square you know, let's do better next time, gang. Like, that's not their message. They're just kind of avoiding the question or, you know, being, you know, pivoting or whatever it may be, just not responding at all. And so I think the main takeaway that I've found from tracking this is that supporting the big lie, questioning the 2020 election is is not a deal breaker in any way for Republican voters. It's not necessarily a guaranteed win, uh, you know, depending on the race, but it's certainly not hurt candidates who have really gone for it in their primaries.
1: Yeah. And I should say, you know, this 538 has taken on a pretty big project in tracking the beliefs and statements of all of these Republican candidates in order to track this. Nate, what does that data tell you? Sort of 35% outright deny the result of the election, uh, another 14% questioning it. You know, in terms of American elections, in terms of the direction of the Republican Party, what have we learned so far?
0: I mean, don't something like 75% of Republican voters (laughs) question the election results? So in some ways, maybe those candidates Mm -hmm. are underperforming. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think my impression, and it's maybe more a hypothesis than something proven by the data or whatever, right, is that like, yes, most Republicans think the election was stolen and are pretty sincere in that belief, right? They're not just kind of trying it on uh, because they think the poll is a joke or something like that, right? There's been political science studies about how this is a fairly robust belief. It's not just kind of necessarily like a, you know, partisan FU statement, right? At the same time, I don't think, they think it's that salient or relevant either, right? And they don't necessarily want to relitigate all the issues of 2020, and they still have the problem that like Trump lost, right? Even if you believe the election was stolen, he's still not president right now. <laughs> um, I mean, I think Democrats are happier to talk about it than Republicans, and that probably tells you something. Although, yeah, if Democrats really want to talk about that and only that, then they can charge Trump, <laughs> right? That's a big decision, I, I, I guess. The White House is kind of more likely to be conservative on that in a lowercase c way. But um, but yeah.
1: So that is public opinion and how voters are reacting to election deniers. But perhaps more importantly is the nuts and bolts of future elections and how they're administered. A lot of these nominees may end up in Congress where, you know, they could be responsible for certifying the election, but won't ultimately be overseeing the election on the state level. There are secretary of state, attorney general, lieutenant governor, governor, gubernatorial nominees who are also election deniers who will be overseeing elections on the state level. Kaylee, what data do we have on how the big lie has fared uh, in those primaries?
3: Again, for races called through today, uh, for attorneys general, there are four Republican nominees who have denied the legitimacy of the 2020 election, two who have raised questions. That's out of 18 total nominees that we've tracked so far. For secretaries of state, three have denied the results of the 2020 election. One has questioned it. That's out of 17 secretaries of state um so it's still playing a role in those races as well it's a little less common but we are seeing it come up with certain nominees and it's been part of their platform to be quite honest that they you know believe in an election integrity that 2020 was you know stolen and so that's why you should vote for me to be the new secretary of state or attorney general The you know if we look at like brad raffensperger and what happened there with trump where he was pressuring him to to, you know, quote unquote, find him enough votes. The concern I don't think is necessarily that like Christina Caramo, who is running for secretary of state in Michigan, not likely to win, but is the Republican nominee there. um, It's not that she would say yes to that phone call necessarily. But having that those doubts about the election opens up a different pathway than we've seen before. And one of the main takeaways of the hearings and, and the reporting and understanding of what happened on January 6th is how close we were to a really disastrous moment where not necessarily the results would be overturned or, you know, the election thrown out, but something close to it or more chaotic or, you know, think something being sent back to states or states sending alternative electors. Right. I
1: mean, what what happened was already pretty it bad. It was very right? bad.
3: Yeah. And, and just the... The, how close we were, like the stopguard there was Republican and Democratic officials in these positions of power that, you know, f- followed the Democratic norm and, and did the right thing. And if you have someone who's questioning that, even if they wouldn't go full hog and destroy everything and burn it all down, you know, the, a day or two of questioning or hemming and hawing or reviewing things could really spark further chaos.
0: I mean, I think this is complicated because I'm not sure what we were or weren't close to. I mean, we obviously... You can imagine things going a bit differently where on January 6th it gets substantially more violent, right? Like, that seems like we were close to that. Or at least the intentions were bad. Um, I don't think we were actually that close to having, like... The election result overturned in 2020 due to anything that Congress would did with counting votes. Because keep in mind that Biden won by by a few different states. Mm -hmm. Also, courts, whether they were Republican-appointed justices or Democratic ones, were not very sympathetic to GOP legal activity after the election. So I would somewhat debate that.
3: I think we're on the same page, actually, here, where I don't think that, like, the difference would be an actual democratic change, but just a little bit of doubt. So I'm thinking, for example, of the state legislators who signed off on their state electors and then after the fact were like, "Mm, maybe we would want to send different ones. Like, maybe we should reconsider this and try to, like, hold alternate votes and kind of push back a bit. Had they done that originally, even if ultimately the right electors went to Congress, that further provokes the people who believed it and legitimizes these claims and the violence that we saw on january 6th i think we could see more widespread that's sort of the scenario that i'm thinking through
0: no i agree and look in some ways i think um people should just generally be on guard and not necessarily forecast particular scenarios right like in 2020 a commonly articulated belief was that oh these States have uh, mail votes that will be counted last, and the courts will intervene and stop the count when there are huge numbers of uncounted ballots, which was totally wrong and probably was always going to be wrong. If you said, however, hey, in general, this is very dangerous. You have a sitting president who has not acknowledged the results of the election, is fomenting misinformation among his base. You have Republicans who are often very loyal to that president in positions of power. The vote certification process is a little bit messy in Congress, right? So being generally on guard, I think, is I mean, this is like a little pet peeve because people are like, people say, oh, well, you know, all the doomsayers were right about about 2020. It's like actually they weren't right. <laughs> they were they were directionally kind of right, but they weren't right in the specifics. And so I think that has a lesson for, <laughs> for for next time, right, which is that, you know, the more you don't know what scenario is going to take place in 2024, it could be a closer election than 2020 where it comes down to one state and not three or four. Mm-hmm. Um, and every marginal Republican official, um, or for that matter, Democratic official who would question election results, you know, just increases the chance of, of bad things happening.
1: All right. Well, maybe it's too specific, I don't know. yeah, I think I mean, no, I mean, I don't think that's like that uh, that controversial um to say, but we're gonna have <laughs> a lot more time to talk about how things could go wrong in future elections. I want to <laughs> wrap up with our good or bad use of polling example.
2: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com dot com now. That's L.I.B.S.Y.N. ads com.
1: We've been talking about the January 6th committee hearings and what effect they might have on our politics and sort of the broader Republican ecosystem of elections deniers but perhaps the most specific thing that people are watching in these hearings is the role that Trump played in all of this and what it means for his future in politics. And our good or bad use of polling example for today is related to that question. So in late June, the University of New Hampshire released a poll of Republican primary voters in the state showing Ron DeSantis at 39%, Donald Trump at 37%, and a steep drop-off to Mike Pence in third place with 9%. Last fall, the same poll showed Trump at 43% and DeSantis at 18%. CNN's Chris Silliza, along with many, many others, wrote up the poll. His article was titled, A Poll That Should Scare Donald Trump. Silliza went on to say, A new poll conducted by the University of New Hampshire has some startling news for Donald Trump. He's no longer the big dog on the block, at least in the Granite State and continues, quote, DeSantis' strong showing in the polls, coupled with the $112 he has sitting in his gubernatorial campaign coffers, suggests that circumstances have changed in the 2024 race. There's a lot to talk about here, and we'll try to get to most of it, but just want to gauge both of you to start, Nate and Kaylee. Do you think this is a good or bad use of polling? And then I'll let you explain, of course.
0: I think it's a typical use of polling.
1: Come on, come on.
0: I mean, there's nothing wrong.
1: Is the typical use of polling a good use of polling? Wasn't 538 started on the idea that the typical use of polling <laughs> is a bad use of polling?
3: <laughs> I'll I'll say it's a bad use of polling. I will go out on that limb for a number of reasons, and like these are like the standard things that we talk about. It's one poll. It's in among pri- potential primary voters in one state. It's two years before any actual election would take place like there's a lot of asterisks to that number and then the the idea that what was it 39 and 37 yeah not you know that's pretty close yeah uh I don't know that that should terrify Trump or whatever the headline was um and also the idea that DeSantis is popular and doing well is also not shocking or surprising that's like well established
1: so okay elaborate
3: or disagree.
0: <laughs> I do think Saliza is right that uh, Trump should be worried. He is the former president. Much of the GOP became a cult of personality around him. And you have a guy, DeSantis, with maybe 60% name recognition who is getting close. I don't know that necessarily by that he's ahead in New Hampshire, although New Hampshire is a state with a very politically active and informed electorate uh, that might be ahead of the curve. But I don't think Trump's polling is that impressive at all, given his 100% name recognition and the loyalty he commends within the GOP, and the fact that you have um, not this divided field like you faced in 2016, but one clear alternative in DeSantis. I mean, among people who recognize the names of both candidates, then it's pretty close even in in national polls when you look at voters who are more likely voters, then it can get closer because name recognition matters a little bit less there. So yeah, I mean, obviously, like, you shouldn't um, look at this poll to say, oh, according to polls, now DeSantis is the front runner of the GOP nomination, right? You can make that claim based on various factors, including some polling data, but the polls still show Trump ahead. And I think if you did six more polls in New Hampshire, Trump would be ahead in the polling average of New Hampshire. But, you know, it's relatively close given how early it is between now and when the actual primary gets underway.
1: Wait, but Nate, Crystal a says that this poll sort of changes the landscape for 2024. This is a poll of New Hampshire. When we look at the national picture, 53 percent of Republican primary voters say that Trump is their top choice for 2024. Twenty-two percent say Desantis; eight percent say Pence. That hasn't actually well. That
0: that that, that's, that average is not very meaningful because like it really depends a lot on on exactly which group of voters that you're surveying, right? I mean, there are some polls where Trump is ahead by forty points, and there's some where he's ahead by ten points or something. I
1: haven't seen I haven't seen much where it's that close. But I mean, looking at Echelon Insights Omnibus, where they've been tracking this over lots of time, right? Basically since Trump left office, you see. Increasing support for DeSantis in the sense that he has consolidated the not interested in Trump support, but you don't actually see Trump's support fall all that much. It's like maybe people who used to say Nikki Mm -hmm. Haley or Mike Pence or whatever now have sort of glommed on to DeSantis, but it's not like Trump in the trend lines is really declining all that much.
0: Uh, Let me bring up a comparison Hillary Rodham. Clinton. At this point in twenty fourteen, Hillary Clinton had sixty six percent of the Democratic primary vote with no clear alternative at all. So basically fifty points ahead of the field, and Trump is, depending on which poll you look at, twenty points ahead of DeSantis and you know like so and Clinton held on and and won by a solid but not spectacular margin, but like,
1: wait, wait, but wait. like I think we're getting our history off a little. Isn't the better analogy 2007, <laughs> 2008, where everyone thought it was going to be Hillary Clinton and she was leading nationally, but Obama started leading in Iowa and mm. that sort of changed the trajectory, even though the national numbers didn't paint that picture until very sort of like well into the actual primary?
0: Yeah, I'm saying obviously 2008, you know, I, I don't know uh, if for comparing Obama and DeSantis, although, you know, but I'm saying even in 2016, even there where Clinton won, I mean, Trump is below her her pace. I guess some more recent elections kind of came to mind more saliently, right? But like, would Clinton have won in 2016 if there had been a clearer alternative that emerged earlier in the process and that was more acceptable in a way Bernie Sanders wasn't to elites, right? I mean, I think the problem that Trump has with DeSantis is that DeSantis kind of gets to play both... Sides against the middle. Right, he is both more acceptable to I don't know if moderate's the right term, but never Trumpers and and people who are concerned about electability and think Trump would lose, right, mm-hmm. or would blow a winnable election potentially at least. um DeSantis is also more on board with like what I think contemporary Tucker Carlson conservatives are concerned about, where it actually is reviving some. Culture war grievances against woke corporations or whatnot, right? That was never exactly a Trump thing. And there's polling showing that among, like, Fox News viewers, that DeSantis is a much narrower deficit with with Trump than among all Republicans. And they are people who vote in primary elections and may be a leading indicator for sure.
3: I do think, though. I mean, so much of this comes down to who actually runs because a lot, a fair amount of the polling on individuals who are Trump supporters, but or have concerns about his electability has to do with them saying that they'd prefer he not run because they're concerned about his electability. But if he chooses to run, those same voters might stick with Trump because he is their preferred guy at the end of the day. I don't know that, especially in these early posts, that those individuals would be bleeding to DeSantis.
0: In theory, there should be a negotiation because like if that, if Pence gets like 14% it's probably coming from the DeSantis pile not the Trump pile, right? So in theory, they should negotiate and Pence should say, I will agree not to run and maybe if it's strategically right, endorse you at some point. But you have to tone down the big lie talk, right? Be as conservative as you want on abortion. Go to town on woke corporations and schools and whatever, right? But like... But don't talk about that stuff because it's bad for the Republican. Also, probably won't help us win anyway because it kind of doesn't appeal to swing voters as much as other issues that you're able to talk about. Um, I mean,
1: yeah, certainly didn't happen in 2016.
0: I don't know that you'll have. I mean, Trump is much more vulnerable if you only have one major alternative to him. I mean, there might be opportunistic Kasichi types, but. If there's one major alternative and everyone kind of knows, I mean, yeah, and that's, I guess that, and that does make the 2008, although Clinton had both Obama and John Edwards, I should point out, right? Hold Um, on,
1: hold on, hold on, hold on. So you really think that, like, based off of this poll, we should be reconsidering Trump's chances of winning the 2024 nomination? Also understanding that New Hampshire is not very representative of the Republican Party. It's like very highly college educated it's not very religious there are a lot of things that sort of don't fit what would apply to like all of the other states in which this competition is going to take place
0: I think it's more true of Democrats because Democrats are more racially mixed and New Hampshire's very white Republicans are are
1: yeah but it's it's not your white. typical white voter in New Hampshire
0: I'm saying the the information there's lots of information well first of all it's not this poll. I don't really give a okay. shit about that poll, right? I think Trump's standing is pretty underwhelming given that he was president of the United States and that we still have, you know, two years to go until the GOP convention. And I think it's bad for Trump that you have a capable opponent in DeSantis who may crowd out the rest of the field. So I don't really think my views are shifted that much based on the New Hampshire poll. But I also know looking at the history of primary polls that like you wanna adjust a lot for for name recognition, right? And on a name-recognition-adjusted basis, it's pretty close. And then every poll you look at where they drill down into some more informed part of the electorate, so New Hampshire voters tend to pay attention to politics earlier, people who are consuming cable news tend to be um, more informed. They may believe some things that aren't correct, but in the classic sense of like, they have opinions about many different political matters and they're likely to vote in primaries, right? So um, every cut of the data that kind of gets at that versus the broader universe of voters who have maybe never heard of Ron DeSantis seems like it's closer. And that would worry me if I were
1: if I were Trump. All right. So maybe it's not this poll in particular, but you have broader views of the vulnerabilities of Trump.
3: Right. But I don't think any of that, it, that's something that we've been tracking for a while now. As you said, that's not like a brand new revelation from this poll in particular. Yeah. And sure. I- you know, yeah, former president, but also like a single term president. Like I, you could kind of slice it and view it as a glass half full or glass half empty result. Uh, how Trump is faring so well that he still does have, you know, a majority support within the Republican Party. He's still got a very influential place in spite of losing the last election.
1: <laughs> True. Well, there's only one option, right? We got to wait. We got to get more data. We got to let time pass. But for now, that's it. We'll let everyone get back to their July 4th recovery activities. And Nate, good luck in your competition.
3: Yeah, good luck.
0: Thank you, guys.
1: Um, thank you, Nate and Kaylee. Thanks. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vanesky is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcast538.com. At You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.
2: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.